Oh, Father, we do give you praises. They sing from our heart. Uh, they, they emanate from our thoughts. You who are worthy because of your great mercy, you brought us in by your grace. We have no business being in your presence or having your pleasure, but you've had mercy on us through Jesus. You brought us to yourself. You've had amazing grace uh, on, on wretches like us, and we thank you for that. And we value it, and we, we want to respond. We give get back to you concretely with these tithes and these offerings. We ask that you'd receive them as worship uh, from us, that you'd use them. And you raise up brand new worshipers, people who would discover your grace, who would hear and be amazed, uh, even as you have done and are doing in us. Keep us amazed. That's the work of your spirit, not us. And so we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all can have a seat if you would. Children can head back for children's worship now. Um, we are going through the Gospel of John. We're in chapter 18 this morning. As you turn there, I, I want to ask you to, to uh, pray for uh, Ian Kath and for Vicki Adams. They both lost their fathers uh, this past week. Ian's a long-term member. Vicki's a, a new member. But pray, just pray for them to have grace. Uh, both of them had uh, older uh, fathers, but it's, it's still your father. And it's still hard and it's still grief. So uh, hug, hug on them uh, if you see them and uh, pray for them uh, as well uh, as they minister with their families. And for uh, our elder um, Kevin Berlin is actually over in Ohio. Uh, his sister uh, passed away last week, and he was doing the service uh, for her. So you can pray for him with his family as well. You might have gotten an email this week, like I did, uh, that is from, I can't remember the name of the gal who sent it or the organization, Faith Life, that we had switched to for our giving. Uh, we found, we had found out that they're actually going to be handing their giving portion over to a third party to do. And so I got an email, and I assume that some of you did as well, that said, you probably know about this, but I know you don't, um, <laughs> that this is coming. And so I just wanted to mention, our, our deacons have been uh, taking a look at this for, for several months as we've made the transition over to Faith Life. We had, they had spent a couple of years looking at our our website and our database and our giving and trying to put all our and our the slides we do for worship and our the emails and texts that we sent out and they were trying to see if they could consolidate all those with one platform and so they finally settled on Faith Life and Josh Escamilla one of our deacons who who uh, moved in August put it all together and literally the week he was leaving we found out that Faith Life uh, on a call with uh, one of their support people, he said, we haven't even, they haven't even made it public yet, but they're actually getting ready to not do database. And, and, and then a few months later, we found out that they were going to switch away from giving. And so that we started looking and, and working on it at that point. And so we're actually going to move our giving back. You know, last year, we moved from Fellowship One to Faith, Faith Life. We're going to be moving it back to Fellowship One. So if you got that email, don't panic. Don't respond to it. Uh, just, you know, tuck, tuck it away. You can delete it or whatever. But, but no, in the, in the next couple weeks, you're going to be getting some information about how to, uh, we'll have a, a, a different text 
text number to give or if you have regular giving, how to change your uh, regular giving from uh, Faith Life back over to Fellowship One. So I just, if, if you had questions about that or if it just left you befuddled, uh, just wanted to let you know. And feel free to talk, talk to any of us or the deacons. Uh, they've been, like I said, working on this for a while and will continue to do it. Um, some people had a bad experience with it. <laughs> it wasn't that bad. <laughs> so, anyway, we're, we're in uh, John 18 this morning, and we, we've got Jesus uh, meeting with Pontius Pilate. And, of course, Pontius Pilate is a very famous name. Uh, you know, many of us growing up in church as children wondered what airline he flew for. Um, but, of course, <laughs> he's not that kind of pilot. Uh, we actually know a lot about him historically, not just from the Bible, but from other uh, historical sources. And the consensus seems to be that he was pretty cruelly brutal and morally weak. He was pretty much a, uh, a political animal. And he used his authority and his power trying to get himself places. Um, he was a lot less concerned about doing right or wrong and more concerned about what would make him look good and cover his back and set him up uh, before the uh, emperor. He was also probably pretty annoyed about getting stuck in this backwater region known as Judea. The emperor Tiberius Caesar appointed him as the governor of Judea in AD 27, and he was there till 36. I, I was just reading in my Bible reading in Luke 3 yesterday, uh, yeah, yesterday, and I was struck because it talked about Tiberius was the, was the, was the Caesar and Pilate was, was the uh, governor, and so the, the entire time of Jesus' ministry, Pilate had been in place and may or may not have been hearing different things about Jesus. He, he didn't like the Israelites. He didn't like the Jews. And he would just do things to annoy them out of his spite a lot of times and, and just kind of disregard for them. But, but then he would have to deal with their uprisings because they'd get all mad and, and, and he would get pretty ruthless in how he dealt with them in response. So uh, that's a little picture of what he's like. But interestingly, John, when he talks about Pilate meeting with Jesus, he tells us more about the private interaction between Jesus and Pilate than the other gospel writers do. All four gospel writers talk about Pilate asking Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Um, but John tells us more than the others do as we're going to see in what we read this morning. But the other thing is John is actually less condemning of Pilate being responsible for Jesus' death as he is for the of the... Uh, just the rabid injustice that, was, that he's trying to show was committed by the, the Jewish leaders, uh, the, you know, the chief priests and the elders of that time. So listen in. We're going to begin reading in verse 28, John 18, beginning in verse 28 through the end of the chapter. Hear the Lord. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? 
And they answered him, if this man weren't doing evil, we wouldn't have delivered him to you. And Pilate said to him, then take, your, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. And the Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken, to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. He was basically affirming him in that statement. For this purpose, I was born. For this purpose, I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. I've heard from the Lord. Let's pray and ask him to help us understand this and piece it together. Father, we thank you that you have chosen to, to let us know what went on in this conversation. We don't know if Jesus told John or someone else told John, but you had John write it down and record an expanded version of this conversation, and, and you, you caused it to be preserved. And here we are a couple thousand years later, uh, and you, as we read it, you plan to use it in our lives. And so we ask that you, by your spirit this morning, would speak to us, cause us to hear your word, what you've just said, and to understand it, and that it would change how we see you, how we see Jesus, how we see ourselves. Uh, and we ask all this uh, for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we, we looked at a good portion of this and kind of some themes that were in there that we saw Jesus as a mediator that John portrays as a prophet and as a priest and as a king. I wanted to get down into the nitty-gritty of the details a little more uh, today with you. Uh, and the first part, we see Jesus being delivered by the Sanhedrin over to Pilate. John doesn't tell us much about the trial before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin were, were a group of 70 elders and priests. Okay, they were kind of like the Supreme Court and the legislature sort of put together of Israel. If, if you, those of you who were here before Thanksgiving when we left off in, in John 18 before Advent and, and January, um, in the previous passage, John was telling us about kind of a pre-trial that Jesus had before Annas. 
Annas was a uh, high priest several years earlier, but he got deposed by a Roman governor, but then subsequent to that, several, he set up several of his sons to serve as high priests. And the current high priest, Caiaphas, was his son-in-law. And so basically, Annas was a puppet master with these other guys were serving in the office of high priest. But Annas was the one really pulling the strings. He was the one who had the power. And so the reason I call it a pretrial is because most likely what happened was Annas was, wanted to question Jesus. He wanted to pull out some data, some evidence that they could then use in the, tri the official trial that they had right afterwards uh, that would go before his son Caiaphas, who was the main high priest at that time, and the rest of the uh, Sanhedrin. John does that because he wants us to see the unscrupulous nature of the trial, that it was basically what we call a kangaroo court. It was, it, was, it was just a railroad job. But what's interesting is he tells us about the pretrial with Annas, but he really doesn't tell us what happens in the official trial before Caiaphas. Now, you can read about that in the other Gospels, but John just skips over it. Okay, he... he finished the last passage by saying, and so they took Jesus from Annas to Caiaphas, and then this passage says, and they bring Jesus from Caiaphas to Pilate, but they don't say anything in between about what happens with Jesus before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. So they bring him to Caiaphas, verse 28 says, they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters, so they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. Now, if you're paying attention, if you think about this, they, they take him to, the, to where Pilate is. They stay outside. They don't want to go inside because he says if they go inside, they're afraid they'll be defiled and they won't be able to eat the Passover. But what's just happened previous to this? Jesus had gone before Annas. Before that, he was arrested in the garden right after what? He and the disciples were eating the Passover. So back in chapter 13, they were eating the Passover, and now we're told that these priests, these leaders of, of the Jews, didn't want to get defiled so they wouldn't be able to eat the Passover. And you may be thinking, well, I thought they already did that. How does, how does that work? And it's not an insignificant question because... There's some scholars who like to point to it and say, ah, here's one of these contradictions you find in the Bible. And so it's good to address it. Or you may just pick it up in your reading and you're thinking, oh, wait a minute, what's going on here? The, you don't find the issue in the other Gospels because they don't mention this part. But John pretty much assumes that you've read the other Gospels. So he's not in conflict with the other Gospels. And after all, John himself wrote back in chapter 13 that Jesus and the apostles ate the Passover meal. So he, you know, he knows what he's already written. He's not writing it as a conflict of thinking, oh, oh I, got, I wrote it down in pen and I don't have, you know, that was before you could just hit delete. They didn't, he didn't have a word processor. He didn't have, even have whiteout uh, yet. But, but that wasn't why, how this got in here. Probably the best explanation is that the Passover was part of what they called the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was an entire week. The feasts that they had, whether it was Passover or Pentecost, uh, were, were a week-long event. And so 
to eat it was, was really involved participating in the, in the feast. And these Jewish leaders, remember, these guys were all about being seen as important and as significant. And that, that's part of how they got their stature and their, their sense of, of righteousness. And so even, even though they were participating in the railroad of the execution of an innocent man, which is not particularly holy, they, they wanted to be seen as holy, not being officially unclean. The, it wasn't just walk, you know, bumping into a Gentile and therefore being made virtually unclean. They believed that if you went into a Gentile's home, you were exceptionally unclean because the, they, they believed in their reports and they probably were, were true that the Gentile or the, the Gentiles would bury fetuses, aborted fetuses in their, in, in their house, would, would be in there. And so you're talking about contact with the dead. So that was a whole different level of being unclean that, that if, if it was just regular unclean, bumping in, shaking hands with the Gentile, they could just wait till the end of the day and wash and they'd be, quote, quote, considered ritually clean. But this took it to a whole nother level. The... The irony is they wanted to remain ritually holy even though they were right in the middle of killing Jesus. And, and it's because they were, they were blind to it. And as, as an application, as, as thinking about, you know, what, what does that mean to us? You know, the, the, the general characteristic that goes along with someone who's self-righteous, who sees themselves as being right or wanting to make themselves right on their own standing, is blindness. Because when you're right, it doesn't occur to you you might be wrong, right? We just don't necessarily me mentally go there. And so you can be doing something that you feel like is really good and you're even trying to be holy, and, but because you feel like you have good motives, you can be oblivious to the, the collateral damage that you're doing along the way. Does that make sense? I mean, many of you husbands have been like, I've been, I've been in that many times just as a husband. You know, I thought I was doing something, I was so focused on doing good that I missed the collateral damage that I was doing uh, getting there. And in, in, a, in a holiness way, there's, just, there's a lack of self-awareness. And spiritual wisdom and maturity is going to thrive in somebody who... This has a healthy self-distrust. If there's anything that any of us, and I mean, you know, definitely me can be prone to, it's self-righteousness. That's just the core root of the flesh. The flesh says, you know, I want to be able to stand on my own two feet before God, you know, and then quote, quote, not need Jesus, even though we're not thinking that at the time. We're just thinking, I want to be good enough for God on my own, so every time I come into God's presence, I don't have to keep asking for forgiveness. But if you don't have to keep asking for forgiveness, then what's the use of grace? Right? And that's the whole point. Is that we, it's always, it, it, his mercy, just like we sang about, his mercy is the theme of my song. I'm always needing forgiveness. I, always, I live in his mercy, and thankfully he's a God who's just abundant in mercy. And so these men, they intended to be holy. They intended to be, you know, honorable. Uh, and they thought they're acting like it. But their blindness just makes their hypocrisy pretty intolerable, right? And so we, we just need to be careful to do the same thing. How, how do you fix it? 
if you're blind, you can't see it. And so one of the most helpful things is to get input from other people. Uh, to assume I'm, I've, I've got my, my, the bent of my heart because I have a flesh, which I always do. It's going to pull me towards self-righteousness, and therefore I'm going to, I should expect myself to be blind, and therefore I need somebody from the outside who can see what I can't see to give me input. So for me personally, if you ever see me saying or doing something that doesn't seem to comport with what I'm saying, please say something to me. Ignore me if I get a little defensive. Just still, you know, because I, I, need, I need to, you know, hear it. We all do. And that's part of why God gives us, you know, a community in each other. I loved how Jeff, as Jeff said, when we got ready to confess our sin. We don't confess our sins to try to beat ourselves up or if we, act, feel, if we feel guilty enough, then God will forgive us. God doesn't forgive you because of your sincerity. He forgives you because of Jesus. And so we go to God and we have the confidence to just bear our souls before God when we're talking to him and say, man, there I go again, I messed up, because he's a God of grace, because he's a God who forgives sin. He wants that to, to fill our minds so that we will live transparently before him. So we, we see the blindness of these leaders in that they think if they just bring Jesus to Pontius Pilate, he's going to rubber stamp this need for execution, because they couldn't, they could pronounce a sentence of death, but they couldn't actually carry it out. They couldn't, because the Romans had, were, were in charge, and the Romans got the final say. What the Romans would do when they came and took over an area was they would let the local leadership stay in place and run things. It's a lot less of a hassle, but they got veto power. The Romans got veto power over what the, the local leaders were doing, and part of that involved only the Roman leaders could say, but actually carry out the execution. And so they thought they were blind, the Jewish leaders, and they thought if we bring them to Pilate, he'll rubber stamp it, and we'll get the execution to take place because we want this Jesus of Nazareth to die a death that is accursed. You know, Paul in Galatians 3 says... Dying on a tree is accursed, according to Old Testament promises. And so they wanted not for just for Jesus to die, but for it to show how he was bad. And so when Pilate responds to their bringing him, he says, well, you know, what's the charge? They're kind of shocked. They say, well, if he wasn't a bum and a scum, we wouldn't bring him to you. And he says, well, what did he do? So he, start, he starts pressing them on it. And that leads to John's main point, that Jesus of Nazareth was innocent and did not deserve to die. Remember, John was writing his gospel well after the other gospel writers had written theirs, a couple decades later, probably 15, 20 years later. And when he wrote his gospel, what was going on at that point in the, in the world was that the, the Christians, particularly the Jewish believers in Jesus as the Messiah, they were experiencing broad-spread persecution from the other Jews. They were basically getting kicked out of the synagogues at this point. That hadn't happened earlier. See, previous to that, for years, they would worship on the Sabbath, on Saturday, with, with the Jews in the synagogue because they believed Jesus was the Messiah. 
he came to his people, to the Jews, and so they worshiped with him. And then on the first day of the week, the next day, they would worship Jesus. But they still considered themselves Jews because Jesus, you know, Jesus was a Jew. But eventually, the, the unbelief regarding Jesus on the part of the broader Jewish population and the leaders pushed the Jewish believers and Jesus out. Now, the Jewish followers of Jesus, they knew Jesus was the Messiah sent to his people, Israel. And so the rejection from their own community was pretty befuddling. They're like, what's, did, did we miss something? Have we gone wrong? Have we made an error? And that's part of John's purpose when he wrote this gospel. He wanted to show them the background for what they were experiencing wasn't anything new. It was the same thing Jesus experienced. He came for his people. He came to his people. And many of his people, the Jews, were saved. But that, that's one reason why John repeatedly refers throughout the gospel, and even in this morning's passage, he talks about the Jews. It's not because he was anti-Semitic. I mean, John was a Jew. Jesus was a Jew. All the apostles were Jews. He wasn't anti-Semitic, but he was trying to have these people realize the larger population was rejecting Jesus as the Messiah, the Savior of the Jews. It's the same reason the Apostle Paul spent so much time explaining his mission to the Gentiles. He said, I went to the Jews. You read Luke explaining Paul's mission. And he says he would go to the synagogue. The first place you'd go when you go to a town is where? A synagogue. And there would be Jews who would respond, as well as Gentiles. But then sooner or later, the leadership of the synagogue would what? Kick him out. That just that became to be. So it wasn't that John was, or Luke or Paul were anti-Jew, but they were just explaining, here's, here's where it is. So if you are a, a Jew who believes that Jesus is the Messiah, but you're getting rejected, that's okay. You've not had a misstep. That, that was, that's been happening all along, and there's even a bigger picture than this. So the Sanhedrin delivered Jesus over to Pilate, but then he's examined by Pilate. And you read in verse 33, Pilate, again, says to him, like we read in all the different Gospels, he says, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus doesn't actually accept the title king of the Jews. Notice he, he asks a question in response to it, because he knew that it was much bigger than that. He was much more than king of the Jews. He was king of the kingdom of God, which included Israel. He was, he was the king of the Jews, but he was the king of everybody. The rule of every tongue and tribe across the globe. And so Jesus says to him, once he clarifies what he's talking about in verse 36 and 37, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king? For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world. See, Jesus says, yeah, I am a king. He doesn't deny being a king. He, does, he doesn't say, yes, I'm the king of the Jews. He says, I am a king. And we talked about that last week. We talked about what his reign consists of, of conquering a people for himself, and then of protecting them, of providing for them, of defending his people. Uh, he continues to do that. But when he says, my kingdom is not of this world, 
what he doesn't mean, he doesn't mean that, that the extent of my kingdom is merely outside the world. I mean, clearly, Jesus' kingdom is, is in this world, and invades this world, and it pervades this world, and, and it affects this world. It has huge ramifications in, in our lives as we live in this world. But he's talking about the, the origin of the kingdom and, and the nature of the kingdom. The, the origin of the kingdom is that he's telling, he's trying to explain to Pilate. Pilate's a Roman. He says, look, this didn't come from world politics. Okay, I'm not a politician trying to set up a, a, a party and get people to follow me. I'm not trying to make Israel great again. You know, so he's, he says, and, and he wasn't trying to come in militarily and try to take over or conquer. I'm not a threat militarily. He said, that's why he says, if, if my kingdom was of this world, my followers would have, you know, fought. They'd start a war, a fight, so I wouldn't get captured by the Jews. But you know that didn't happen, except for one guy whacking off somebody's ear. Apart from that, they, they didn't put up a fight. So I, I'm, I'm not political, I'm not military. And you can tell, Pilate got it. He understood what Jesus was saying, because he immediately goes out and he says, I find nothing wrong with this man. Because he realized whatever Jesus was king of, it, it wasn't a threat to Rome, it wasn't a threat to Pilate. He, he buys into what Jesus was saying because his kingdom is, it includes this world, but it's bigger than this world. The, the new creation overlays this world and, and it, it's, the, the nature of it, the origin of it is that it comes from the Lord. The, the nature of it is that it's spiritual. Okay. The, the, the new creation is a spiritual realm that when, when you turn to Jesus, when you put your faith in him and where he rules is in a spiritual realm and he gives you spiritual ears and spiritual eyes to understand what he's saying and you start to perceive things that you didn't see otherwise. It's almost like, you know, like a fifth dimension, if you might say. That, and... Because it's spiritual, I mean, it's okay, what does this mean for Jesus' kingdom for you and me this week, you know, or this, this month? It's got everything to do with who rules and who reigns and who runs your life. John wrote in a letter, in another letter, he said, do not love the world or the things in the world. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world's passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The issue, this issue of the kingdom is present every day in our lives. You know, I mean, we see it in our in this culture war that's going on over identity. The desire to name your own gender at root is a desire to be your own king. I set, I set the rules. I draw the boundaries. Nobody else does it for me. To, to, it's to choose to not be subject to the one who made you and who made his designs. That's why there's so much adamance about it. Okay, why the pushback's so strong? Because it's about kingship. It's about who's going to rule. And that really matters to people. And, and every, every other kind of, of, of pushback, when you, you know, see things in your world, think, why, why would people do something that seems so crazy? It's because there's a heart commitment to say, I want to make things, I want to create my own world to make it the way I want. I mean, let's just think 
kingship is about culture wars. It, it occurred to me uh, this morning, I was, I was thinking about, there, you may have seen ads on, the, on your phone or, or online, might even be on TV, for, uh, uh, for different online games where you like build a village or you build an island or build a king. There's also some uh, board games that do that. I mean, some of us grew up with Risk. I mean, that's what Risk was about, right? Is you, you conquer the world. It's the same concept. And the reason they're so compelling and you get so drawn into it and you play it for eight hours, right, is, is because it's about being my own king, <laughs> building my own domain. It doesn't mean those games are evil. But, but the, reason, the, the reason we enjoy them is it, it's, it's a chance to be, to be regents, to be vice regents. If you remember what we saw a few weeks ago when we were looking at this idea of the imago dei, where the God makes us in his image, remember, God made mankind in his image, and he gave a job to Adam and Eve, which was what? To build God's kingdom. So God designed us to be kingdom builders. He just designed us not to be building our own kingdoms, but to be building his kingdom. He wants us to be engaged with expansion and, and investment. It's, but that what happened with the fall, with sin, is, is now we have this desire to be autonomous kings. I want to rule my life. You know, you don't wake up in the morning thinking, I want my job to be the single life-organizing treasure in my life. But that happens, doesn't it? You don't purpose to do it. You don't say, today I'm going to get my meaning and identity and purpose from another human being, you know, my spouse or my children or one of my parents. And yet, you know, the approval or the affection of another person uh, just becomes that which compels you more than anything, right? Or the fear of people. There's a reason Jesus spoke about our treasures. You know, what th- they're, they're what we make, what we think are going to make our little kingdoms go and grow. And that's why we can be so bound to things that we treasure, whether they're people, whether they're our, our jobs, whether they're a, a political movement. It's that my world will work if I can get that right. And, it, and it's basically taking taking that sovereignty out of God's hands and seeking to be my own sovereign. And it's something every one of us, every single day, it's, it's just going to be a pull. So if you, think, if you think about what is it that makes you consider you feel like you had a good day? And a lot of times if you, if you kind of think about that, it might give you a little window on where, where you're tempted to do your own kingdom building. Or you might look at your anxieties. Okay, what is it that threatens your sovereignty in your kingdom, or what, what is it that threatens you having, quote, quote, a good day, which is generally pushing against you being, you know, us being able, me being able to be king. What, what are, where might the weak part of your reign exist? Uh, you know, you, you can begin to recognize some of the things that might threaten my reign as, as those things which I'm, I'm living for. See, li- little, the little kingdom living, which is living for my kingdom, it ends up turning life into just this endless search for earthly treasure, things on, on earth that'll make my life go. What was it John said? The world is passing away. All that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life isn't from the Father. It's from the world. 
it, 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 if you're focused on that, you're going to be chasing treasure, or you're just going to be chasing your personal need, this focus on, oh, I, I need this, I need that, because it's about building up myself as a king. If, if we recognize what Jesus was saying, that his kingdom is not of this world, li- living for, for King Jesus and trusting he's going to provide for you. He's not trying to hold out. He's not trying to tamp you down. He wants you to have life abundant. But it's trusting him for it instead of trying to control things to make it happen, control people or things around me. So Jesus said, you say that I'm king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Now, the truth isn't separate from the kingdom. Because the truth is about the kingdom. The truth is all about the king. And Jesus is telling us who he is, and all that Jesus said about the kingdom was, was truth and about himself. And so if, he says, if you're of the kingdom, if you're of the truth, if God's been bringing you into it, then what you're going to do? You're going to listen to the king. If you're trying to build your own kingdom, you're going to be listening to yourself and your own voices about what it is you need out of life or how it is you need people to treat you or people to honor you or people to bow down to you, which is what you do with the king. Right? If... If I'm, if I'm listening to his voice, to overlay, to override my voice as a filter for, for the voice in my head, that, that's what guides the kingdom. That's why we study this book, because we want to say, what does he say? That's, that's why the things we do is this, it's the story of his kingdom. And, of course, Pilate, Jesus said, whoever is in this kingdom will, will listen to what I say. And Pilate hears that. Of course, Pilate's the guy who's supposed to be in charge. And Jesus isn't pleading for his life. Jesus isn't, isn't saying, please let me go. Jesus is saying, yeah, you got to listen to me if you're really part of the kingdom. And Pilate's like, what is truth? I've got nothing. That's, that's not my world. I'm not part of it. And, and you, you see it work out in his loosey-goosey regard for the truth that even though he absolves Jesus' guilt, he says, I find nothing in him, nothing wrong in him. Now, you'd think, if he's the judge, if he's in charge, and there's nothing wrong with Jesus, he'd say, you can leave, you're out of here, you're done. But he doesn't do that, does he? Pilate says, there's nothing wrong with him, he's innocent. But because he's out for himself, he's trying to build his own little kingdom. He manipulates, he even disregards the truth, and he says to the Jews, he says, but you guys, you guys have a custom on the Passover, release a prisoner. So how about if I release to you the king of the Jews? He's kind of making fun of it. He, he thinks he can keep peace in Jerusalem, his own little kingdom, by mollifying the very people he despises. He's living for them. But unknowingly, he doesn't realize he's actually carrying out the will of God. So as we think about Jesus as king, let's have that lead us to the table. Father, we thank you that you've given us this window into what missed it. He did not head the other direction. Rather, he embraced it because he knew that becoming king involved and would entail his laying down his life, his being apparently, seemingly conquered by the king of this world, someone who was ruling even Pontius Pilate. Father, not only did Jesus die, but you raised him from the dead and you seated him 
at your right hand. And so as we come before you now, as we have trusted in King Jesus, we thank you that you've given us a picture to remember, to imbibe, to declare by our actions that we believe he is the king. And we pray that you would feed our faith now as we come to this table so that we go out living this week like he's the king and delighting in that, knowing that's the best news we ever heard. So we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.